Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samhasambuddhasa Buddhangdamang sanghangdamasami I have this experience where I, uh, as I go through the day, I'll have all these kind of inspired thoughts about uh, what would make a good Dhamma talk. And then I write notes down, and then I look at my notes, and I can't make out the heck I was thinking at the time. So uh, my inspired thoughts are always available. There's a saying in Buddhism that uh, Dukkha is our best teacher, or uh, suffering or discomfort, unsatisfactoriness is our best teacher. Uh, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with best teacher, maybe um, best motivator. But maybe best teacher, it's, it's a little hard to say for sure. The thing about our discomforts and the things that make us feel dissatisfied with how things are going is they have a, a the potential to reveal something new and useful, helpful to us if we take them the right way. And there's, there's kind of a right way and a wrong way to grasp these things. The Buddha talked about it, uh, uh, that it's possible to grasp the Dhamma the right way or the wrong way. Uh, if you grasp the Dhamma the wrong way, you're using it um, for its, not for its intended purpose. And then it doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually help you. In fact, it can actually harm you. And if you, if you take hold of your suffering the wrong way, then it'll just make things worse. It won't actually lead to an escape. So I've been thinking a little bit lately, it's been on my mind, what's the right way to take hold of suffering or what's the right way to regard one's discomforts? And of course, the short answer is um, mindfully, reflectively, uh, seeing to the best of one's ability the three characteristics, but primarily the characteristic of uh, the dukkhas are right there. If your suffering is happening, if you're feeling uncomfortable about something, annoyed, put out, irritated, angry, fearful, despairing, jealous, bitter, resentful, uh, uh, lusting, hungry, restless, you name it. Maybe all those things at once. Whatever it is. Um, it's, it's a mistake to take it seriously, or to take it personally, or to, to decide that it means that you have to do something. Because it's simply your uh, 
taking hold of it wrongly. And discomfort's pointing towards something. It's uh, indicating a place in your mind, one of your mental habits, that's uh, not fully examined, not fully understood, not completely unpacked. Something which is operating in your mind, in the background, or under the radar, as it were. You're not really fully aware of what's going on. And because of that, there's some grasping happening that you're not aware of, or that you're not fully aware of, and so you can't let it go. And because you're not able to let go, uh, you feel this discomfort, because the truth of the matter is, all mental suffering is arising due to some kind of grasping or clinging. That's not to say that ordinary human discomforts, like uh, the, the discomfort of an arthritic wrist, um, isn't unpleasant or isn't uncomfortable, and that's true too. Uh, this is just the ordinary dukkha or the ordinary unpleasantness, you could say, or unsatisfactoriness of just being burdened by these, these khandhas, these requisites of humanity. Having a body, having a mind, being sensitive to contacts. Pleasant and unpleasant will arise. And along with that will come things that the mind just doesn't like. But most of our suffering isn't of that nature. Most of our suffering is what the Buddha called the second arrow. So the simile of the man on the battlefield who's been shot with an arrow. The Buddha brings this up and asks, the, asks his listeners whether they think that would be painful. And uh, they agree that it would be. And he says, imagine that, that man shot with this arrow if he were to be shot with a second arrow. How about that? What do you think? Is that even worse? And, they, and everybody agrees it's that's makes it much worse to have the second arrow come along and inflict this additional pain. And of course, the, the Buddha points out that the second arrow is one that's self-inflicted. It's an arrow that we put into ourselves in response to the first arrow. So the second arrow is the thing we're trying to learn how to stop doing to ourselves. And uh, so my recent experience with the second arrow was kind of subtle. It uh, started with uh, this new kuti that we're building. The, the, uh, the contractors are actually building it, of course, we're just paying for it. But the, uh, we're, we're, uh, the uh, I and Ajahn Viridamo and uh, Tansuri Meda, we're kind of intimately involved with its progress. We go out there, we check on it from time to time. And uh, oh, 10 days ago or so, the senior contractor asked us to look after uh, a heater that they had set up in the Kuti over the weekend. And this is a propane heater. They had it uh, set up so that it would help dry out uh, the interior uh, drywall work that they were doing. They were mudding the walls, and you need to dry that stuff out before you can do the next layer. 
and it was really cold, and so they needed to raise the temperature. And the usual solution is to hook up a heater. So they had a couple of propane bottles out there, and they'd set up one of the windows of the building with a uh, covered it with a, um, a a concrete board panel with a hole cut in it, and they had the heater's uh, exhaust vent, which is basically just a, a this is like a little shop heater. Um, it burns gas in a grate and um, heats up a, a wire frame, which turns red, and so it kind of produces a lot of infrared heat as well as the exhaust gases from the, from the burning. They had that poking through this little hole into the room and dumping heat into the room. An adequate solution. Well, they asked us to keep an eye on it. So I went and checked on it one day and I noticed it was burned out, that the uh, heating element itself had, had crumbled and the flame had gone out. And so the building was cold, so I went down to the workshop, grabbed another heater, hauled it back out to the site by hand, and set it up inside the, the, the room uh, and turned it off. So this is the kind of workshop heater that I'd been using for decades. It's uh, the same sort of thing that we used to heat the tent uh, during the Katina a couple of years ago in October. We had one of these set up in each corner of the tent. Uh, throwing off heat, a little shop heater, quite uh, quite powerful, um, but not the sort of thing that you would use, say, in a, a baby's bedroom or something. It's it's a bit on the crude side, and it's it's venting directly into the into the space. So it's not the sort of thing that you want to have on while you're trying to sleep or something, because it might be producing carbon monoxide. It's not really meant to be heating uh, occupied living spaces, but for heating workshops and stuff, it's totally, totally fine. So I set this up, and I got it working, and everything was fine, and I left and went away. So far, no suffering. I'm feeling fairly proud of myself. And then a couple days later, uh, so I, I talked to the contractor about it, and he says, oh, thank you for setting that up. And a couple days later, I go out to the site, and there's this big a sign on the door uh, and it says something along the lines of uh, please do not under any circumstances set up a direct exhaust heater inside this building right? so I was like very kind of adamant and uh, strongly stated uh, and I was taken aback I was like oh, you, know, you know what are they talking about <laughs> this, this must be referring to what I did with this heater, but they never said anything to me. So my mind started kind of spinning about, you know, what did I do wrong, or uh, what's, uh, what's this all about? And for a while, I was caught in it. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I kind of was vaguely aware that there's a suffering happening. It was sort of cooking in the back of my mind. You know, I said, well, those guys, you know, they're, they're just... Uh, they're going on about something uh, that, like they, they believe that directly exhausting the heater inside the building with the tank included is somehow more dangerous than having the tank just outside the window uh, but that's you know, they're, they're misinformed you know? like I'm right, they're wrong so there's this kind of internal um, setting up of opinions and views happening in my mind. 
And I even complained about it to Tansir and I was like, those guys, you know. Um, but in thinking about it some more, uh, what I realized um, was this was like one of the, uh, what the Buddha calls the eight worldly winds blowing. So the eight worldly winds are uh, gain and loss, or uh, you could say good fortune and, and bad fortune, um, pleasure and pain, uh, fame and obscurity, praise and blame. And so the, the Buddha, and another great uh, simile of the Buddha, these, these eight worldly winds uh, blow us around, blow beings around in the world. So they're being blown around by the pursuit of uh, the positive ones and fleeing from the negative ones. So we, we like praise and we dislike blame. And they, they push us around. If we get praised, we get happy, we get pleased. And if we, get, if we receive blame, then we become uh, disheartened or defensive. Or and the same thing goes for for a gain. You know, if you have a stock portfolio and you're and you have a sudden gain of wealth, then that feels a certain way. And if you same stock portfolio takes a nosedive, then of course that feels different. Pleasure and pain, same sort of thing. And uh, fame. Uh, I had a friend who told me once that fame is a, is, is actually one of the most dangerous ones. Uh, he got a little taste of it when he was a young man uh, doing some sort of public speaking uh, event. And he got a lot of praise and he started becoming a little famous. And you could see it was, his, he said, it was, it's worse than heroin. It's really, really addictive. You have to be really careful with that. And then obscurity, you know, the, the opposite. If you've ever been kind of famous, then being kind of obscure doesn't feel so great. So um, this is one of the worldly winds blowing in my mind, primarily the, the, the wind of, of blame. So before I had praise, the contractor was like, yeah, you, you know, you're helping us build the building, and now I have blame, which is like, you almost burned the place down, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it could have exploded, you know. So, and then, it, and then my mind was reacting to it, trying to, to deflect the blame. Like, no, you've, you know, you're, you don't understand. I know more about how propane heaters work than you do. So this is the way that the, it's kind of a typical way that our minds react. Um, something touches us in a painful way, and we re, we take it serious. We take it personally. We take it on. And then we're, then we're reacting to it. We're being blown by it. It's pushing us. It's motivating us. It motivates our actions. It motivates our words. And maybe worst of all, it motivates a hell of a lot of thinking in our minds. Our minds are just run like a, an, an engine that's being, you know, having the pedal to the metal just floored. Right? The mind will just run and run and run. And so uh, eventually... I caught, I caught wind of it. I caught, I caught the theme that was going on there. Aha! This is exactly what the Buddha is talking about. The problem with getting caught up with those winds, those eight winds, is, of course, uh, you don't really have any control over them. You can't, you can't force people to praise you, nor can you force them to, um, 
to hold you as famous. Um, you can make wealth, but you can also lose it. It's very, very fragile. And pleasure and pain, they have their own agendas. If you, if you go chasing after pleasure, it always ends up turning into something unsatisfactory. So, um, uh, that's, that's a, a fool's pursuit, to pursue those eight worldly winds. Whether you're running after them or running away from them, or trying to control them in any way. So, okay, here's the case where there's, there's blame. And whether the blame is justified blame or unjustified blame actually doesn't make any difference. It's just blame. And the mind doesn't have to have, uh, uh, doesn't have to be moved by it. So how, how does one establish oneself so that the mind isn't moved? And that's of course what the path is all about. Uh, the, the key is to have a basis of um, practice the Eightfold Noble Path. So when we have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, as we, as we develop those aspects of the path, then we're equipped uh, increasingly well over time to recognize these kinds of things happening in the mind as they come up. And uh, uh, we can become more and more skillful with this. So the, the trick is, as soon as you see your mind being moved by one of these eight worldly winds, to go, aha, you know, sort of wake up to the fact that that's what's happening. My mind is being moved by one of these eight worldly winds. And the habitual thing that my mind has always done is to try to justify its position or to get what it wants, uh, to, to uh, minimize the, uh, um, the effects, uh, to somehow try to control it, rather than simply witness it. Witness what it feels like to be on the receiving end of blame. You know, some social discomfort arises, some feeling of, like maybe, a painful feeling of, of somehow being unworthy or inadequate. These are all conditioned feelings that come from prior prior experiences with blame. But they don't last. They, they pass away. Something else comes along. The mind can't hold on to it for very long if you're not feeding it. But if you let the mind get into a, a, a monologue, a soliloquy about why it shouldn't be this way, uh, especially if you start making determinations about how you're going to fix it, how you're going to set those guys right, for example. Then, of course, um, all you're really doing is spinning in this, uh, in this worldly wind. You're a, you're a flopping kite. But if you can see, oh, this is what happens. If the mind does this, this, this kind of contact arises, the mind reacts, tends to react in this way. What would be like? What would it be like to just uh, suppo suppose um, that that was actually a blameworthy thing, uh, or or that it doesn't matter whether it's blameworthy or not? Just sort of like try to imagine those different ways of holding um, that painful contact, and as you play around with it in your mind, you, you can kind of see that it's really a matter of perspective. 
if you take it personally, then it's painful and the mind wants to defend itself. If you don't take it personally, if you say, eh, you kind of say to yourself, that's just how it is. You know, people have opinions. It doesn't matter. Then the mind can let it go. It, loses, it literally loses interest in that thing as an agenda. It no longer cares. And so it's able to just drop it and move on to something else. So it's a matter of, uh, you can sort of trick yourself, you could say, or talk yourself, uh, or um, dhamma yourself into a different stance relative to your holding on. Uh, as long as you're holding on too tightly, then the mind is more or less bound to react to the painful contact or the pleasant contact. So if there's, a pleasant, if there's something pleasant arising, the mind doesn't want to let it go because it's enjoying the pleasure and it wants to keep it going. But if, if on some level you're, you're reflecting at the same time, oh, here's a pleasant contact, like say you're enjoying your lunch. If you're bearing in mind that pleasant contacts always end, uh, and you're kind of reflecting on how like, oh, it's getting closer to the end, and uh, feeding that back to your mind, then it counteracts the tendency for the mind to simply kind of grab on and not pay attention to this larger context, to this bigger picture. And then when the end does come, rather than sort of going, yep, that's how it is, and, and being able to let it go, sort of like actually allow the mind to lose interest, because of the grasping, there's a tendency to look for more, like to want seconds, to want uh, something else, to want, you know, a, a nice cup of tea now, or, you know, something else to kind of fill the, the need for hunger and a continuous source of pleasure. So our reflective capacity is vital, is, is essential in being able to drop the agendas of the mind, to drop the clingings of the mind, when it's being blown around by these eight worldly winds. And this is literally the, uh, the thing that happens to us all the time. It's, it's, it's what the path is all about. It's not just while we're sitting on the cushion. It's while we're, we're uh, walking, standing, or lying down, all four postures, as the, uh, the Thai forest masters like to say. Whatever we're doing, our minds potentially are being affected by these things. So we, uh, we might have uh, some long-standing uh, proclivity. Say we're, say we're subject to uh, self-criticism or maybe sadness or anger or uh, craving, of, craving for, for entertainment. These are all possibilities that habitual states of the mind can get into. Just see how those are, are manifestations of these eight worldly winds. Uh, and the more you experience them from that perspective, the easier it gets to just see them very objectively. When you're seeing them, seeing them objectively, and you're not identifying with them, then you're seeing the characteristic of anatta. And this is really the way out of any one of these little traps of the mind. The dukkha is right there on the face of it. You don't have to look very far to see the dukkha. Right next to the dukkha is uh, anicca. Right? And also right next to that is anatta. So dukkha, anicca, anatta. Unsatisfactoriness, 
not self, and permanence. The three characteristics of conditioned existence. We just chanted that sutta, the Anatta Lakana Sutta. And the, the, the uh, wonderful little catechism that the Buddha gives, he asks, uh, what do you think about this, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? And they say, permanent, Venerable Sir. And then he asks, again rhetorically, and is that which is impermanent? And in this case, uh, that, that which is uncertain, that which is insecure, that which is constantly changing. Is that painful or pleasurable? And maybe an expanded interpretation of that. Is that um, a source of danger or is it a source of refuge? Is it a source of satisfaction or is it a source of dissatisfaction? That which is constantly changing, uns uncertain. Um, what do you think? And they say, it's painful. It's, un it's unsatisfactory. It's dukkha. And then, of course, here comes the capstone. Well, is it fit then to consider that which is impermanent, constantly changing, and uh, unsatisfactory by its very nature because of its changingness? Is it fit to consider that to be one's self or one's possession or, or some characteristic of, it, of the self? Um, and they, they, they admit, well, no, it's not, it's not really fit to, to reckon it such. And so that's a re maybe a reverse order of what I'm talking about with this worldly wind thing. You can see that the winds are impersonal on the face of it. They come and they go. Praise and blame comes and goes. Fame and loss of fame comes and goes. Wealth and loss of wealth comes and goes. Pleasure and pain, they both, they come and they go. They're impermanent. So that's, that's true, but they, because they're coming from other people, and because we can see them as winds, we actually start off with the, the kind of impersonal nature of them in the first place. So I didn't go looking for that, that blame. It just popped up. It wasn't even aimed at me personally. It was a cardboard sign. You know, so it wasn't like anybody come and came and blamed me. So I, I, I took it. I took the, the the letters on that sign, interpreted them, and then used them to blame myself. That was the actual mechanism that was happening there. And it's just because of conditioning. Uh, none of that was under my direct control. It wasn't something I chose to do. It's just what the mind does. It's impersonal. It's obviously unsatisfactory. We don't have to figure that out. And it, it, if you watch it, it's always impermanent. These recognitions, recognizing the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the, uh, the not-self, or the, the impersonal quality, the natural quality, you could say, something that belongs to nature. It's just the nature of things to be like this. That's what makes it impersonal. Clouds are impersonal. They might be beautiful, they might be ugly. Deer are impersonal. Trees are impersonal. Blame is impersonal. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's just something that happens. So when you see these characteristics, the mind loosens its grip 
you just reflect on them, you see them, you recognize them, you say, uh-huh, there's the impermanent part, there's the impersonal part, there's the dukkha part. Um, what do I think? Is this worth grasping onto? Should I, should I make a big deal out of this? Or can I let this go? And so those are like the three, uh, the three characteristics of conditions existence are also like the three pry bars of the Dhamma on your insane grip on things that are painful. Right? The way to get the mind to be able to let go of stuff is to recognize the true nature of it rather than the presumed nature of it. The presumed nature is uh, it's it's me or it's mine um, or I can control it. I can I can affect this. I can be I can be in charge of it. That's taking it personally. That's not its true nature. So when you reflect on its true nature of seeing it as impersonal, then it, the mind just naturally gets more relaxed around it, starts taking it less seriously. And so this is this is what the Buddha is asking us to do. When we come to the monastery, and we're we're practicing, you know, sitting meditation and walking meditation, and we're trying to be mindful and. And we're trying to practice the Eightfold Noble Path. And the whole thrust is to get the mind to be able to abandon that which is unwholesome. As long as the mind won't abandon those things, then we're bound to suffer. So we use every trick in the book, every technique the Buddha gave us, every opportunity that presents itself to find out, can I find a way to let go of this unhelpful uh, mind state, this unhelpful stance that I'm taking relative to other people, to events, to objects, to situations, to circumstances. You know, if the mind's doing something unwholesome, unhelpful, it's gonna, it's gonna be uncomfortable, it's gonna be painful, it's gonna be unpleasant, it's gonna be disturbing, it's gonna motivate action, it's gonna motivate speech. So if you see that happening in your mind, the first step, of course, is to just not do anything. That's it. just straight-up restraint. Just holding yourself back from doing uh, something responsive that, uh, that you recognize might not actually be uh, motivated by metta or deep wisdom and understanding. So being able to keep one's mouth shut is a, a, a very powerful spiritual capability. But going beyond just a brute force restraint, there's restraining the mind from dwelling inappropriately on painful contacts. And dwelling inappropriately means to, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha called it ayoniso uh, manasikara, not uh, unwise reflection. So we, we look at what happens to us, we look at the events in our life, we look at our, our circumstances, other people, and we reflect on it in an unwise way. We look at like what's wrong with it, or uh, you know why I should why I should take some, or why I should have it, or how great it's going to be. We, 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 our minds are habituated to these relating to things in this kind of unwise way. Uh, greed, hatred, and delusion are the basis of those. So when we look and we try to notice, we try to recognize the impersonal 
the impermanent and the inherently unsatisfactory nature of conditioned phenomena, that's wise reflection. Yoni Soma and Sikara. And wise reflection leads to, uh, well, the Buddha called it dispassion. Um, it's simply the mind's giving up its entanglement, giving up its opinion, you could say, about how things should be. And uh, just by just letting go, again, lightening up, um, there's a cessation of the unsatisfactoriness of it. So that's a, there's the third noble truth presenting itself to you in real time. So the happy ending to my story, of course, is I, I followed my own advice and reflected uh, as carefully as I could on, on my feelings around being blamed. And uh, it went away. No hard feelings. So this is uh, just a, 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 few, uh, a few reflections for your consideration. Andamayang dhammo vadakatha sadhukarang dadamasay